Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This episode is my fourth in a mini-series focusing on the scholarship of the 2019 Sacred Rights Cohort. Sacred Rights provides support, resources, and networks for scholars of religion committed to translating the significance of their research to a broader audience. I highly recommend checking out their fantastic work on Twitter at sacred underscore rights or online at sacred-rights.org. The topic of this episode is yoga, cultural appropriation, and a discussion of the challenges facing public scholars of religion who openly critique structural racism in society. In the midst of history unfolding before our very eyes in the United States, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, which led to massive protests and many documented escalations by police against protesters, I find the lessons of this conversation on cultural appropriation, whiteness, structural racism, and more to be strewn throughout with lessons. The guest on this episode is Dr. Shrina Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is a multifaceted cultural historian of religion with expertise in religion, race, the Americas, and Hinduism. She was trained at Swarthmore, Harvard, and the University of Florida. Professor Gandhi currently teaches at Michigan State University, where she starts off the first few weeks of all of her classes introducing students to the concepts of structural white supremacy and why that is important for a better understanding of religion in the United States. Her research and public scholarship are on the history of yoga, and she is revising a book manuscript on this using the framework of white supremacy and cultural appropriation. This conversation talks about all of these topics, including her incredible backstory of why she realized the importance of public scholarship. We also talk about Christianized yoga, trauma yoga, and more. We discuss two of her articles, Yoga in Popular Culture, Controversies and Conflicts, as well as the article Trauma Yoga, Goat Yoga, and Other Yoga Trends in the Age of Social Isolation. You can follow Dr. Srina Gandhi at twitter.com slash Srina Niketa, and a link to her Twitter profile is in the show notes. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Srina Gandhi. Dr. Srina Gandhi, welcome to Classical Ideas. Uh, thank you. Thanks for, for having me. It is a delight to have you. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself however you see fit. Uh, well, I'm Srina Gandhi. I uh, teach in the Religious Studies Department at Michigan State University, and I cover classes on religion and race in America, as well as Native American religions. Fantastic. And I research on yoga. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's we're, we're going to get into all kinds of stuff today. Um, so what was your, um, your, your background like? How did you get interested in being a religion scholar in the first place? Like where did your, what are some like turning points that happened for you along your years of education that landed you kind of where you are today? I always thought I would go into history because um, I was very inspired by one of my um, U.S. history teachers in high school when I took AP U.S. history, Dr. Doug Collar, and um, 
and I got to Swarthmore College and just kind of fell in love with the religion professors there and the religion department. And as I, you know, kind of reflect on why religion and not history, I think about my grandfather who um, used to teach Buddhist meditation around the world, Vipassana meditation, and would come and spend summers with me, him and my grandmother, and uh, uh, would undo all the Hindu teachings my mom gave me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, my grandfather and I, um, we would take long walks every morning uh, in the the hot New York summers and um, talk about philosophy, religion, the meaning of life, things that, uh, you know, I still remember fondly today and I still don't have any of the answers to. And then the other thing he would do is he'd also always take me on different trips around New York city, uh, whether it was the world trade center or the empire state building, the museums. And then we would continue talking about that, uh, those things that interested him and then eventually interested me too. And so I think, you know, I'm very, I'm a very analytical person but there is something about religious studies that allows me to indulge the part of me that he helped create. Um, mm. Yeah. What a nice little moving tribute. That's fantastic. I love that the, the, the cultivation of the, of the young mind by the, uh, by the, fa- by the, the fantastically curious family member. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I owe a lot to him, to who I am right now. Awesome. Um, So you and I got connected because I am friends with Dr. Liz Bucar, who has this fantastic public scholarship and religion project that she uh, manages in collaboration with other people called Sacred Rights. And this is a public scholarship group in religion. And so you are a 2019 fellow for Sacred Rights. I am interested how and why you came to be interested in pursuing this particular opportunity with sacred rights. Right. Well, I've never had any aspirations to be public in any way whatsoever, (laughs) (laughs) but I kind of uh, got dramatically pulled into the public eye. I think it was 2017 me and a uh, colleague and friend by the name of Lily Wolf wrote a blog um, on uh, for for the Kalamazoo College Social Justice uh, website. Um, And the blog post was on yoga and cultural appropriation. Mm. And in the, in the blog post, we made some arguments about the connection of cultural appropriation to, to whiteness and white supremacy. And um, it's an argument that I'm going to be making in my book as well. And I think three people read it when it first came out. Mm -hmm. And then in, at the end of January, uh, February, 2018, it got picked up by um, the college fix, which is a right wing college uh, news, news and quotes site. Sure. And from there, it got quickly picked up by Fox News. Before I knew it, Tucker Carlson had an entire segment on me, wow. not my white co-author, just just Brown me. 
and <laughs> I realized really, I got a ton of hate mail, uh, some, some threats of uh, various types of violence uh, towards my body and police reports had to be filed. And I realized um, that I needed to, I needed to be more responsive in my own scholarship. Um, I had a very supportive department, uh, supportive friends that got me through it. It was definitely scary. I think it was scary also because Richard Spencer was scheduled to come onto Michigan State's campus uh, during spring break. And I know he likes to single out professors and, um, and I got put on a professor watch list as well. So that was, that was fun. Um, but since then I've been taken down from it. I'm not quite sure why, I guess I haven't been too controversial in the last mm. few months, but I'm glad I'm off of it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I've never had any aspirations to be particularly public, but what I realized is sometimes you don't have choices in these matters. And rather than sitting and crying, I was like, okay, I need to figure out better ways to talk about whiteness and white supremacy in ways that are more educational rather than, you know, enraging. And you're never going to get some people to understand, right? Mm -hmm. I've learned that too. But at least I can try to pull in some people to, be a little bit more literate when it comes to uh, racism in the United States. Wonderful. And, um, so then this opportunity came up and I applied. Nice. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> so were you, went, were you faculty whenever in 2017? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I've been faculty for a long time. Um, oh, okay. I, uh yeah for over 10 for 10 years now oh, okay. over 10 years yeah so you were, were you an associate professor whenever that happened no i'm i'm an assist i'm a fixed term assistant for, uh uh faculty member at michigan state university so i it's a it's a unionized position which i love and oh, I, cool. I love my department and the way that we deal with labor is really great at msu but it's still like a um precarious position because you do like a one-year renewal and I think I was really lucky to have um, a department that was so incredibly supportive, even though they got hate mail and hate voicemails sure. as well. Um, and, and the dean uh, and the whole college was uh, extremely supportive and, and protective because they knew um, that just my very identity makes me vulnerable. Mm. And what was really funny is I have a friend in the department, Mo, who writes on jihad, Muhammad Khalil. And my, our department uh, secretary was laughing. We, you know, we'd laugh about this sometimes because he writes on jihad and I write on yoga and never has she ex experienced any, any, this level of vitriol from anyone regarding his scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, you know, I mean, I think, I think I hit a nerve and I still, I think, I think it has to do with what I wrote and uh, about whiteness and the truth about what I wrote. And I think that um, some people who would be considered politically conservative as well as politically liberal did not like what I had to say because uh, it's, it's some, uh, it has to do with identity and sometimes those conversations hurt. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. 
Um, so I have been reading some of your pieces uh, that you, they've sent over to me, and I'm here today mostly to talk to you about yoga as well, yeah. um, and your range of interests, of course. Um, so I was looking at a piece of yours the other day called Yoga in Popular Culture, Controversies and Conflicts, and I've talked about this topic on the podcast a little bit um, with uh, a colleague of yours that you know named Philip D. Slip, but based on your career and research, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how yoga today um, varies from its first appearances in the U.S. like over a century ago. Right. I mean, I think the first reference I've found to yoga in American popular culture comes from Henry David Thoreau. And I don't think he knew what he was doing when he did yoga. I think uh, based on what I've been able to extrapolate from various writings of his and various other documents, he kind of just saw it as um, sitting and contemplating, you know, on the banks of the Walden, which he imagined were the banks of the Gandhi's river. Yeah. And um, you know, and even when I, you look at the theosophists, they also don't fully know what they do, they're doing. But like Thoreau, I think they're imagining doing something kind of exotic and Eastern, uh, primordial. Uh, and I think all of those figures are more uh, enticed by the exoticism of the idea of yoga than actually real yoga. And or I don't know, I hate the word real yoga. So let me go back. Other yoga that was practiced in what is now South Asia in India. Okay. Um, because I don't necessarily think there is a particularly real yoga. Mm. <laughs> but uh, they were definitely enamored by uh, this idea of the Orient, right? And engaged in very Orientalist uh, practices, right? And um, and an Orientalist type of racism as well. So there's like a sort of like exotic, exotic view of what people in South Asia do, right? Yes, yes. And, and I think one of the reasons that yoga has become so popular and so successful is that exotic nature of yoga has still been sustained um, and is still very much a selling point um, in getting people to practice it right it's not only good for your body but it's good for your soul mm. right? um and uh you know i i don't necessarily think that there's been a huge radical change in uh the practice of yoga in terms of from south asia to here right there is evidence despite what a lot of white scholars will say there's evidence of uh people doing yoga in terms of physical postures and breathing in 9th 10th 14th 15th 16th whatever century in india mm -hmm. and the best record for this is actually not texts but uh material culture mm. whether it's painted images or carved images you can go and see temples in india that were literally carved um you know about a thousand years ago and they have people or mainly women um on the sides of these temples uh doing uh this various breathing exercises with their hands and their nose doing various um postures 
that they couldn't do unless they had, you know, certain types of flexibility that you get through doing yoga poses, right? So um, yoga has always been about uh, posturing with the body and breathing and training your breath in a certain way, right? And when you look at people like Swami Vivekananda, he focused on the breathing part, right? And then later on, you have more people bringing in these physical postures uh, that enable you to have a certain flexible body or, you know, lose weight or whatever it is, uh, gain strength. Um, and so you have that definite uh, connection, right? But then I think the ways in which it's uh, kind of been, uh, shall we say, creatively reimagined mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, has a lot to do with um, our particular economic system right now and that everyone's always kind of looking for the next big thing, the next niche. And so I think you see these changes more rapidly because society is changing more rapidly than it was, let's say, a thousand years ago. So before we go into the reimaginings, I'm curious why you landed on yoga. Like, what is your, like, what was it like about deciding to become a, a, a person who studies these trends and this history within yoga? What was it about that topic that drew you in? Well, I think partly I have to, again, credit my grandfather because we did yoga together and uh, he would make me, anytime I would have trouble sleeping, he would make me breathe. Uh, do a breathing exercise Mm. and um but I also think you know I was driving from Florida to New York and I uh stopped in a hotel because there's no way I was making that drive in one night yeah I turned on the tv and uh put it on VH1 and there was a show that came on called The Fabulous Life of Religion Mm. And I'd already watched like the fabulous life of Britney Spears and JLo. And so I was like, well, let me watch this. And then all of a sudden I see, you know, yoga and it's like, uh, they have a picture of a Buddha and they're like, this is an ancient system rooted in uh, Buddhism. And that was my first like, huh, not exactly, but okay. And then uh, they started talking about yoga booty ballet and they were interviewing this white woman who is, um, invented again invented in quotes uh yoga booty ballet and i just thought there's a story here and i need to tell that (laughs) nice well these popular culture um trends and the way that yoga bends to different contexts and like in the different cultures that it's practiced in so a few of these um you know trends that you have documented on have been like um all, all kinds of stuff like Christian yoga, um, like the prevalence of like yoga pants is like a, a, a massive fashion statement and trend for like certain demographics of people. But then also things like goat yoga, rage yoga. So there's so many things I want to ask you about. Um, okay. So first thing, um, how did you get interested in telling the like unknown history of like the yoga pants? Like, cause that was a really fascinating area that I, that I read about in your controversies and conflicts article. Yeah, I guess um, I've always been interested in the material side of religion. And I don't know if that's because I um, come from a very material religion, right? Hinduism is super material or, you know, I, I, I genuinely love wearing yoga pants. I'm wearing them right now. Oh, nice. 
<laughs> and uh, when they first started coming out, I was like, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> you know? um, but I was in Old Navy and I saw a uh, pair of yoga pants and it ha- there was like a little tag on it and it said things that make you go home. Mm. And I just thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. And I just, um, I also, as, as a woman and as a feminist, always am particularly perturbed when women's bodies are policed, especially when young girls' bodies are policed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you're a high school teacher, so I'm uh, sure, maybe, maybe, I don't know if this has become an issue at your high school or your previous high school or not, but um, women's, what, what these young girls choose to wear is always an issue that comes up, uh, annually. And my question is always, why are you looking? Yeah. <laughs> what they're wearing. And so I just kind of went from there and ended up finding all this information about Lululemon and, uh, that particular CEO and his, comments about women's bodies and he I just, had a lot of really crazy things that you documented in that article yeah <laughs> so I just kind of uh mushroomed from there but I also the piece that I wrote was for specifically an undergraduate population and as I've as I said I've been teaching for a long time and I noticed more and more that girls are coming in wearing leggings I I wear leggings and I thought this is one way for them to kind of maybe enter into this history because I think when it comes to yoga, people don't know that it started in South Asia. And when it comes to this topic, I'll never say to anyone, don't do yoga or or don't come up with a creative way to do yoga. But I think for a lot of South Asians, it's just, just acknowledge that it came from that area, right? That there's a colonial history there. Um, And uh, so I think yoga pants is one way to kind of get people interested in this, this kind of history. And also I think it's so important for young adults who are making consumer choices to understand that a consumer choice is more than just your particular uh, preferences, but that it involves an entire labor market. Um, and, and everything from how do you make the cotton, who picks the cotton, who, Mm. um, refines it who makes it into cloth who sews those pants together right who um is bringing those yoga pants over to the store for you to consume right um if you're ordering it online who's making the cardboard boxes that those yoga pants will go into that will then bring that to your home there's a supply chain that uh, we don't think about especially as americans and we don't think about labor and that's the insidiousness of capitalism it makes us forget labor and i think right now in particular we're being forced to think about our supply chains yep in um, some really i think important ways and so when i wrote about yoga pants and when i teach this particular article in my class we always talk about the capitalist side of things, right? How do those yoga pants go from A to Z, right? From a little ball of cotton to, you know, you wearing them. Well, and there's so much interesting uh, detail as well about who is it marketed for, who is excluded. And in the piece, you start with a section on yoga pants with a fun, challenging Google activity. Yeah. What would you encourage everybody to do online whenever they search uh, for something like yoga pants? Well, first, I would say 
if you're just gonna, you know, look whose bodies are being, whose bodies and what parts of their bodies are being shown in the images section, right? Mm -hmm. And on, in the ad advertisements uh, for yoga pants. I think that tells us a lot about how yoga has been gendered and how um, yoga pants and yoga serves sometimes to sexualize bodies in a particular way. Um, but the other thing that I would encourage people to look for is just what I, we were talking about just now. What is the supply chain? What is the process of these yoga pants? Um, where, if, if you can get this data, um, you know, where is that cloth coming from, right? Who is sewing together, running the machines that sew together these pants, right? Um, does the place that you're buying them from have ethical labor practices? Um, or are they saying things about women's bodies like, you know, women should have a thigh gap and if they don't, they're deficient. <laughs> yeah, well, and the Lululemon guy was saying things like, oh, there are certain women who shouldn't even buy these pants. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you've seen him, but I just don't kind of feel like any, any man really should have anything to say about what women should or should not wear. Well, and as <laughs> or, a guy teacher, like you were yeah. mentioning about policing uh, student fashion choices at schools, I've never once asked a female student to change in any way. And a lot of teachers, I would watch a lot of teachers and administrators like make, send people home to change yeah. and things like that. And I just never was willing to go there because yeah. it's like, do I want this person to have this experience with me where I police the way that they choose to appear at school? Right. Or do I want to be able to teach them how to write and research right. and literature, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Because you break that, you break that trust when you, when you tell somebody this is what you can and cannot do no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I see it at least, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely interested to hear a little bit more about Christian yoga as well. Um, why it was necessary for Christian yoga to even exist, um, especially when so much yoga in the United States is done like it is, you know, as a physical exercise where there's like a lot of secularity um, right. involved. What goes on in Christian yoga classes and why does this exist? Well, I mean, so the roots of yoga are, you know, uh, religious, right? Yeah. Um, I would say if you look at ancient and medieval India, you have evidence of Hindu yoga, which I think is the most prevalent. You also have evidence of Buddhist, Jain, Sikh, Muslim yoga, because mm -hmm. uh, India or South Asia has always been a multi-religious place. Um, in uh, It's had moments of peace and moments of violence, just like everywhere else in the world. Sure. And, uh, you know, people... Uh, see something's working and they, they're like, okay, I'm going to adapt it to fit <laughs> what, what, what I think. Right. And so that, that makes um, sense, you know, so that's important to know about the history of yoga. And I think when people like Swami Vivekananda came here, um, they uh, were very well aware of, they weren't going to be able to convert anyone to Hinduism. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what Swami Vivekananda did is he said, you know, you can do this um, alongside your Christian practice. Mm. So he never asked anyone to convert to Hinduism. What he said is you do your Christian practice and this supplements it. Yoga supplements it. So um, 
from the beginning, yoga has been set upon a secular trajectory, at least in this country and other parts of Europe. Um, I think nonetheless, though, because of its religious roots, you do have some people that are um, wary of it. And, um, and just like, you know, uh, other religions took yoga in, in South Asia and made it part of their practice, you have religions doing the same here too. So you have Jewish yoga. Uh, there was a great article that came out a few years ago on Muslims doing yoga in uh, Jackson Heights, uh, Queens. And then you also have uh, people doing Christian yoga, right? So in the 1960s and 50s, um, you had nuns, you know, experimenting and doing yoga and, and priests and uh, the Catholic church during the 1980s kind of shut that down, but uh, people experiment. And so you start having Christians saying, okay, we, we can do yoga, but make this a part of our uh, tradition and reimagine things to be a part to, uh, to fit our tradition. So you have uh, the sun salutation, S-O-N, instead of the sun, S-U-N salutation, right? Um, and I think the majority of Christians are okay with this and comfortable with this, but then you have people like Christine Willis, who has um, her Christian alternative to yoga that feel that yoga still, the very act of doing it, the very positions you're putting your body in, uh, could result in uh, demonic worship, because for them, Hindus are demon worshipers, I guess. Yeah, idol worshiping. <laughs> idol worshiping, yeah. yeah. And um, so she comes up with praise moves, right, which is a Christian alternative to yoga. Interestingly enough, though, if you look at her praise moves, they are eerily similar to what some people might recognize as yoga moves. Mm-hmm. And um, what she's doing in terms of alphabet yoga using the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew, Hebrew letters is very similar to what people um, who started experimenting with Jewish yoga were doing back in the 1970s. So there's gotcha. that too. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and there's like all these other trends as well. Um, like something that I'm curious about is your work with studying trauma yoga, mm-hmm. goat yoga, and you have another piece out just a few weeks ago during this age of the COVID-19 pandemic called trauma yoga, goat yoga, and other yoga trends in the age of social isolation. Yeah. So um, you, you put it out right at the apex of like social distancing in the U.S. and as like Italy, Spain, New York, France, the U.K. Mm-hmm. and all other hotspots for flaring up around the world. And in the piece, you say that we are witnessing a possible transition in American yoga where it is expanding from being mostly about physical health to also lots of mental health. And since we may be in for periodic bouts of social distancing and quarantine over the next 16 to 18 months while vaccines are worked on, um, this is particularly prescient because we might be doing our lives via video like you and I are right now for the foreseeable future in fits and starts. So what are you noticing about how the conversation about yoga's normally communal gathering practice is changing in this age of social isolation? How is the conversation changing and adapting well you know so when i first wrote this piece i had nothing about social isolation because you know it hadn't gone we hadn't even started that yet and um as i 
was doing my final edits, I said to the editor, I think I need to change this to at least address this Mm -hmm. uh, because it feels kind of irresponsible not to. And as I was doing research on that, what I noticed is there are some yoga studios that just cannot sustain right now and have just had to close up. Yeah. Uh, There are other yoga studios that at least are trying to do online yoga classes where you pay $10 to join the class at a particular time. Um, And then there are some yoga teachers that are like, this is not the way we were meant to teach um, and are doing more one-on-one classes. And so I think right now there's just a lot of experimentation and um, uncertainty and just kind of where there's, we're kind of in a, in a waiting game, right. Uh, to see what, what happens yet. Will the yoga studio be able to, um, come back? And and I would say yes, because there is something, uh, that feels particularly good about communal practice, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in whether it's yoga or church or, you know, going to a bar, right. Uh, we're communal species, um, and I think w- looking at goat yoga in particular, um, the communal part of that, the communal part of being able to cuddle with goats is very much one of the reasons it is become so popular, mm. right? Uh, rage yoga as well, you know. Um, trauma yoga, though, is something different. But did you want to ask a question? Yeah. So let's <laughs> chat about those. I kind of want to know just a little bit about some of the basic details because somebody might be learning about these styles of yoga for uh-huh. the first time, and they might actually be interested in trying these things for themselves right. um, yeah. with a little bit more information about them. So I kind of want to start with trauma yoga. So the okay. last one that you were mentioning. Um, yeah. So this isn't necessarily new, but I feel like, um, based on my impression of the piece that I read of yours, that it might be growing somewhat quickly. Um, what's the purpose of this practice and how does it vary from something like, you know, like any other kind of like vinyasa yoga or whatever? Right. So with something like vinyasa yoga or a lot of the other secular yoga classes that occur, um, uh, a lot of focus, especially in this country, is on posture and mm-hmm. getting that pose correct, right? And having your body particularly aligned. Um, and this occurs in, in India as well when I've done yoga courses. You know, I'll have a woman come up from behind me and just push, pull my hips up to, you know, be in, in, in better alignment or, you know, she'll, you know, do other, like try to get my calves to cooperate, which they never do because they're yeah. super- you know and so there's a lot of touching of the body um and in trauma yoga you don't have any of that it's not about the alignment it's not about proper postures the people who have been teaching it for years are incredibly and beautifully um sensitive to the fact that the people that attend their classes have experienced various types of trauma whether it's ptsd whether it's sexual assault uh, whether it's years of child abuse, right, all different types. And so they're very careful not to touch the body, but let the practitioner move the body how they feel most comfortable. And mm. I've been really, um, really impressed with uh, that level of sensitivity. And again, reimagining yoga in such a good, nuanced way, mm-hmm. right, that, it's, that it helps people heal from their trauma. Yeah. And, um, so I think, 
that has been really, um, really a privilege for me to kind of do research into this and to kind of see how it's been, um, it's been really helpful. And then also like just working with Lily Wolf, who I wrote the cultural appropriation piece, she's taught me a lot about how yoga can be used to heal from various forms of racial trauma, whether it's dealing with racism or kind of being awoken to the privileges of whiteness. Um, uh, so yeah, I think uh, that has been, I, I'm still exploring because, you know, uh, it mandates that, but, it, but it's been really interesting to kind of see yoga be used beyond ways of just making the physical bo body more flexible or thinner or whatever. Sure. Well, and that's interesting because like I, I used to go to hot yoga classes um, and the first time uh, somebody came up behind me and like moved my back yeah. and like my, my hip position, like I flinched. I was like, wow, because yeah. I didn't know that was going to happen. It was my first time and all of a sudden somebody's moving me around. So I can totally imagine to where like if somebody had some past traumas and somebody comes up and all of a sudden moves you without mm -hmm. saying anything that you might flinch and you might freak out and you might want to leave and never yeah. come to that studio again. Exactly. exactly. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what is a uh, goat yoga? <laughs> so goat yoga, that started coming up um, on my radar, maybe about a year and a half, two years ago. So one thing I do just because I'm not, you know, just kind of want to see where yoga is going is I do a Google alert. Yeah. <laughs> so every day I get like, an email that's like these are the you know the top 10 google stories and um <laughs> or top 10 yoga stories on google and goat yoga started coming up again and again and again so when i first pitched this idea to brett it was about goat yoga alone and then uh the other thing that started you know so basically before i move on to the other thing goat yoga is literally just yoga with goats Mm. And so it can either take place on a farm. There are a couple places that say that they invented it first, you know, this competing narrative there. Um, I've seen it take place in actual yoga studios or in a place like Chicago, like in a public park. And so basically you do your different yoga poses. And while you're doing that, literally baby goats are roaming around you. And then afterwards you get to snuggle, carry, pet, whatever, with the goats and uh, take pictures with them. And there's a lot of laughter involved because while you're doing the yoga poses, sometimes a goat will like come up from behind you and decide to get onto your back, which nice. again uh, goes against the tenets of trauma yoga, but <laughs> this, it works for goat yoga. And I think people are expecting that. And um, yeah, and right now, I don't think there are any places that could safely hold a goat yoga class, but um, it's definitely something that if people want to um, engage in there, I mean, I think there are places pretty much in every single state, uh, from what I understand. And then there are other types of like, I found a farm that does horse yoga and goat yoga, you know, because I know animals have always been used in therapeutic ways. Mm. Um, and um, are such empathetic beings, you know, I mean, uh, people who experience trauma often have a dog, right? Yeah. Uh, 
And so it kind of, it makes sense that yoga has kind of gone in this direction. And I think the most interesting thing I found out in my research is that the Wounded Warrior Project actually had a goat yoga session to help veterans with PTSD mm. and they loved it, you know. Is there golden retriever yoga yet? I don't think it's there, but I feel like you got, that could be your next calling. <laughs> I, I tell you what, because like I love puppies and yeah. I think that having puppy yoga would just be a descent into uh, laughter the whole time because the right. dogs would just be on your face when you'd be like, you know, in like happy baby or something mm -hmm. like that. And the dog would come over and just start kissing you furiously and it would just be a good, good little uh, moment. I feel like you need to patent this right away. Puppy yoga. Puppy yoga. Um, Go to puppyyoga.com. Make sure no one's taking that from I bet, you. I bet, I bet it exists. I bet somebody's done it. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. So, uh, so as, a, as I was reading your article, I, I looked at the section on rage yoga and I immediately thought of, do they listen to Rage Against the Machine, like bulls on parade and do yoga? And sort of, it sounds yeah. like that might actually happen. <laughs> yes. um, so tell me about uh, Rage Yoga, because I'm a fan of heavy metal music now and then. And um, so I, I feel like this could be something I may need to check out. So Rage Yoga is actually something that you can do right now, um, because from the beginning, the uh, person that started Rage Yoga, whose name is escaping me right now, I'm sorry. Um, she actually, there, there's a website, and she actually does have online courses that you can enroll in. And um, so that would, if this is something you're interested in, that's a good time to kind of go and check this out. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of Rage Yoga involves uh, screaming into the abyss. And I mm. feel like a lot of people feel like doing that right now. So that might be a thing for you. Uh, but, uh, you know, it can't, again, it's one of those things that can take place anywhere. What I found interesting about rage yoga is a lot of times it takes place in, um, breweries, mm. you know, so people can have a drink next to them as they're screaming and cursing into the abyss. Yes. And then socialize afterwards. I think a lot, a lot of things with goat yoga and rage yoga has involves this kind of socialization afterwards and uh, making friends and having that communal experience. Uh, but it is something that you can do right now too, as well. So um, it, it's yoga that lets out internal frustrations openly and just yes. screaming. Ah! Yes. And so, I mean, I think all of these in some way deal with not only the physical body, but mental health, mm. right? I mean, sometimes you just need to scream into the abyss and let things go and let things out in order for your mental health to be good. Yeah. You know, um, and sometimes you just need some physical touch with whether it's a baby goat or a baby puppy, you know, just to kind of get that good feeling. Right. So I think uh, thinking about how we need to focus more on mental health. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that yoga is also responding to this. To yeah. this call that we seem to be having generally in society. I think I'm on about day 50 of being in my house right now. Um, I think that's accurate. New York, you know, I think we, we went down on like March 11th. Um, so, did, so did I, March 11th. <laughs> yeah. And so, and you're in Michigan, so you're in sort yeah. of a hot spot as well. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing on Twitter after about 20 days or so of being in my house, one of my friends posted on Twitter and said, well, good morning to my neighbor who stepped out onto his balcony in his bathrobe and screamed the F word as loud as he could 
took a sip of coffee, did a big stretch and went back inside. And <laughs> maybe he came from doing rage yoga in his living room and just came maybe. outside to tell the world, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think at these times that is fucking amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> Appropriate. Yeah. Can you, um, Tell us a little bit about your forthcoming book. I know you have a project in the works. Yeah, and I've been, I mean, it's been forever that I've been working on. This is uh, my dissertation that failed to get published. And then I rethought about it and revamped it. Um, kind of based on my experience that we first started talking about in the blog uh, or in the podcast, which was that blog. Um, yeah. And I realized, you know, I think when I first revised the book, it was, you know, my thesis was, well, this is about, you know, how yoga has been raced, gendered, and classed, right? And, and very much influenced by Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, her theory on intersectionality. And then now that I'm revising it, um, and I've, I'm writing a new chapter right now for it on the importance of studying whiteness and uh, acknowledging whiteness and white supremacy in religion and religious studies. Mm. And so the book is still about race, gender, and class in some ways, but also very, very intentional about talking about whiteness. So when I write about Henry David Thoreau, talking about not just what he wrote and everything, but his experiences as a white man in early America, mm -hmm. right? And I think kind of um, making that normative, right? Making kind of getting away from the idea of, American as white and using white American, Euro-American, the same way we use African-American. Sure. So incredibly important. And so that's kind of one of the intentional projects of this book is to um, make it normative to talk about whiteness the same way we talk about other ethnicities um, and other identity experiences. Um, and so that we're all kind of flattened and democratized in a way um, and can maybe then start having those difficult conversations through this research about um, white privilege, you know, about uh, white supremacy culture as it permeates the United States, uh, and and maybe start to dismantle some of these systems. Nice, <laughs> you know, and uh, get to a better place. Fantastic. Well. Are there any places online where you would direct people to if they want to know more about your work? Like maybe like I know that you just put out that piece in the revealer. Um, yes. Maybe you have some social media you want to talk about or anything like that. Um, I think you can follow me on Twitter, Shrina Nikita. Um, I think that that is also my handle on Instagram, which is private though, but you can always ask to be my friend. Sure. <laughs> where you can see pictures of my family and the food I cook. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And um I uh, also, I think, I don't know, sometimes my link is working on the MSU site, sometimes it doesn't, but if you have any questions, you can email me at gondish at msu.edu. That is Gandhi with an S-H, so mm -hmm. it's like a little bit Gandhi, but not quite. <laughs> <laughs> and I love my MSU email. It's the best email ever. I wish I yeah. had thought about that sooner. Gandhi-ish. I love um, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, any, you know, and, but I guess through Twitter or through email is, you know, the best way to get in touch with me. Right on. Well, um, Dr. Srina Gandhi, this has been a 
fun and invigorating and also, you know, pretty inspiring conversation about um, yoga and your book project and your research. I've just uh, loved having you on and talk about your, uh, you know, your foray into public scholarship because your, your backstory um, leading into the conversation was uh, unknown to me. And that was uh, interesting as well. So I appreciate you sharing that story um, about saying why it's so important for religion scholars to be public facing and uh, to be engaged in this conversation because we have some issues that we definitely need to address in the coming years as a country to move forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you do, not only as a podcaster, but as a high school teacher. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.